Okay, so today we resume, we continue with the Platform Sutra book study, exploration. And uh, we ended that back in March and uh, then uh, did other things. And then summer came, but uh, I thought it would be good to uh, pick up where we left off and uh, continue. And uh, we will keep going whenever there is time, whenever there's nothing else going on, just so we can uh, keep going and, and at some point conclude and end this study, uh, and by which time we will start again, because I'm sure we forgot a lot. Uh, what I want to do is go back to a couple of uh, important points that uh, we started with back when we started this exploration. And this is uh, from the introduction, Bill Porter's introduction. You don't have to search for it in the book. It's just a paragraph. He said, life is important and death is important. And so is liberation from life and death. This is something we all deal with sooner or later, but it isn't something we all deal with equally well. The Platform Sutra is the response to this question of a Chinese monk named Huineng. As it, as it has come down to us, this book has passed through the hands and minds of millions of people throughout East Asia, and it has been revered as no other Chinese Buddhist text. It is the only Chinese text ranked alongside the sutras of the Buddha. It's a very important point. So yes, the question of life and death. Life is important, death is important. Well, both are unescapable, right? And the question of what do we do with that? How do we? How do we live and how do we die? Right? It's paramount importance. And many of us choose to ignore it, choose to live as if it's not true, or choose to not believe it as something that is true. So, Huineng, uh, just a few words about Huineng. He was an illiterate woodcutter who uh, would gather wood uh, in the forest, cut it, and then sell it uh, to different people, different store owners, and made enough money to feed himself and his mother, to support his mother. So one day he was, uh, he was selling wood to a, a storekeeper and he heard a monk reciting the Diamond Sutra. And when the monk got to the line, dwelling nowhere, raised the body-mind, Huineng had a deep realization experience. Dwelling nowhere, raised the body-mind. The one line, it's a one line that if there's one line that we can just practice on a daily basis and then put everything aside, everything else aside in terms of scripture, sutras, text, that will be the line. That will be the line. Dwelling nowhere, raise the body-mind. When we dwell nowhere, we raise the body-mind. And when the body-mind is raised, we don't dwell. Right? So on a momentary basis, day by day, this line is asking us to examine, are you dwelling? Where are you dwelling? What are you stuck on? What is it that your mind is creating or karma is creating 
that you believe and you follow, that you put your trust in, dwelling nowhere, moment by moment, looking at our triggers, looking at what we like, what we don't like, looking at our attachments. This is what, these are the building blocks of the house in which we dwell. They seem real, they feel real, and in fact, they become real when we believe them, when we trust it, when we follow it. And then, of course, when we go inside, close the doors and windows and dwell within our own created cocoons. So dwelling nowhere. So he had this profound realization experience. He then decided to leave everything behind. Uh, the story tells us that uh, he found a benefactor that would support his mother. So he didn't just turn his back against anything, everything he had, everything he was responsible for. He did find uh, another arrangement for his mother. So she was taken care of and he dropped everything and he traveled about 200 miles north. He basically went to seek the Dharma at the monastery of Hongren, who was the fifth ancestor in succession from Bodhidharma. So when he met Hongren, there was a story about that. I'm not going to go into this. But Hongren immediately recognized his deep level of attainment. And he asked him to, uh, he accepted him, and he said, why don't you go and work in the, as a rice cleaner, right? To sort out rice in the shed, rice shed, away from the actual monastery, actually. And, and just do that for a while. And after nine months, he called him into his room and decided to make him the official successor, the sixth ancestor, despite what is expected, right? Despite what is expected of, what was expected of him uh, in terms of traditional norms or traditional expectations as a fifth patriarch, he decided to completely go against that and make him the successor without being ordained. He wasn't ordained. He, was not, he did not go through the, the traditional step-by-step step as everybody else was expected to. So he told him, okay, now you are my successor officially, but you're going to have to go into seclusion for quite a while, escape the wrath of the monks who would definitely disagree with my decision to make you the successor. So he did so, and the monks, some of the monks did run after him. He escaped, and he stayed in seclusion for many years. So after things calmed down, he came out of seclusion, and he was then recognized as the official sixth ancestor of Zen. There's a story about him coming out. There's a koan in the Mumonkan about that when the monks, the two monks arguing about the flag. Is it the flag moving? Is it the wind moving? And he said, it is your mind moving. And the story went on and other people heard about that, including the abbot of the monastery, the local monastery, who, who realized this is, these are the words of, a, of somebody who's deeply realized. He brought him in, talked with him, and then realized that he is the one that everybody was looking for. He is the official sixth ancestor. So recognizing that, realizing that, he actually ordained him and made him the abbot. 
which is another, I think, very important story in terms of Zen practice or what we think Zen actually is. So another note about that, about Huineng, is that, that all Dharma teachers in, in the Zen tradition, all lineages, can be traced back to Huineng. It was after Huineng that things started to develop in different directions and different, uh, different ways of teachings uh, arose later on. But, uh, but all teachers in all traditions, all lineages, can be traced back to Huineng. So, uh, previous section, right? We are going to go to th- section 32, uh, but I want to read a few words just to remind us of, of some important points from the previous sections or section. So, in the previous one, we talked about the importance of being guided by a Dharma teacher or someone who has traveled the path for a while and has a good understanding of the teaching. And he refers to such a person as a good friend that ultimately mirrors your essential nature to you, right? That's what he means by good friend, right? So, which means that it all comes down to you turning inwardly to verify who you are on an intrinsic level, which is Zazen on a daily basis, right? Do not believe, do not follow, strangers in your mind, or the strangers are created in your mind. Go back home, turn it inwardly, stay connected and and, and communicate with that, and allow that to communicate to you how to take the next step. So do not follow or believe strangers. And this is not others, this is our own other in the mind. So he refers to that as a good friend. He also refers to all practitioners and all Sangha members as good friends, right? He actually, um, you can see that throughout the sutra, at the beginning of the sutra, he begins by referring to everybody who came to hear him in that famous, um, what he, a, big, a big platform was built for, I did not mention that, but the big platform was built for him at that time and a lot of people gathered to listen to his teaching. This is what this sutra is based on. So all these people who came to hear him, he referred to all of them and he's referring to all of us as good friends. And he begins the sutra with that. So good friends, us, right? Us as a Sangha, we're here to support each other and to work on going beyond beyond triggers, beyond reactivities, so our true nature can shine forth and can be a reminder to each of us. Now, we can, of course, remind ourselves different things, right? We can react, right, and be triggered and remind ourselves of those aspects of our being as well. And then what happens when we are reminded of that, of the negativities in us, right, the destruction in us, or destructing forces in us, then that's what we believe, that's what we follow, that's what we trust, and that's what will perpetuate. But in terms of good friends, there is the goodness in it. The goodness in it is what we need to be reminded of, what we need to reflect and project to each other. This is why a couple of weeks ago we talked about practicing love, not just assuming or also not making it conditional. 
So to practice unconditional love is to go beyond, beyond the small-mindedness of our being. And we are small-minded. This is not criticism. This is observation. We are small-minded. We are self-concerned and self-centered. I think we have to begin every day with that. I am, I have a tendency to be self-centered. Therefore, I'm going to practice opening up to others. I'm going to practice loving other people. I'm going to practice being compassionate. I'm going to practice care for others. Because it's a way for me to get over my own self-centeredness. And it's a way for me to find the way home. It's a way for me to find the way home. It's all about homecoming. So to be good friends for each other, it means, it means again and again, as we've been talking about, to sustain the Sangha. To sustain the Sangha. And I think that all of us could use some investigation, looking into that. Am I doing that? Or am I picking and choosing what and when I will participate in based on my own interests or based on other things that are going on in my life? Yeah, I'll be there, but I am a part-time practitioner. We may not say that, but we often practice as such. right? And again and again, to show up is not just the times I show up. To show up to the practice we show up together to remind each other to practice going beyond self or self-centeredness from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. It is not something we do on Sundays. It's not something we do during Zazen only. It, is, it has to be. For it to be real, it has to be embraced and embodied and explored moment by moment, throughout moment by moment, existence. So if we are that for each other, we are truly good friends. If we're not that for each other, then we need to examine. Right? We talk about wholesome and unwholesome. Good friends turn towards or learn to decipher wholesome and unwholesome, learn to cultivate and nurture wholesome and abandon unwholesome in themselves first, right? Because it has to begin. And it's very easy to point at others and say, he or she is wrong. They should be doing this. They made a mistake. How many mistakes I make on a daily basis, which I choose to ignore? What about that? We make mistakes. We forget things all the time. But never mind that. You made just one mistake, and I'm going to hone in on that. And it's how we often act. So we have to examine ourselves and take full responsibility. And that's what the practice is about. So if anything, if we learn anything from this part from Sutra, it's that. This is the, the simple and profound teachings of Huineng. Very simple. Deeply, deeply profound and needs, needs to be examined on a daily basis until, until our last breath on this earth. Until our last breath. Because there is no graduation day, and we never, ever master it to a point of saying, I got it. I got the point. 
I know what I'm doing. Nobody does. So he says, you need to find a truly good friend to point out the way to see your nature. And what do I mean by truly good friend? Someone who understands the teaching of the supreme vehicle and who points directly to the true path is a truly good friend. A great intermediary, a guide who helps people to see their nature. All good teachings can only come about due to truly good friends. Now, he goes on, he goes further from that, and he says, you will attain liberation when you meet the good friend inside your own mind. Because ultimately, ultimately, this is where the goodness of our friendship to each other, right, comes from. It's not something, it's not a text, it's not um, a, a list of to do or to don't do, right? Or to not do. It's not that. It's not something external. It's within. And when we are together with each other, mirroring that to each other, it means we need to turn inwardly and see, yeah, there is. This is where the good friend is. It's within me. Then he says, but as long as your mind is full of confusion, delusion, and mistaken views, even the, the instruction of an external good friend won't be able to save you. Right? Take full responsibility. Well, I am studying with so-and-so, and this person is deeply enlightened. Therefore, I'm going to just vicariously follow them or look at what they do, admire that and then keep doing what I'm doing. That's mistaken view. Following somebody, to truly follow, to truly be a link to this tradition means to take full responsibility for our practice, means to examine on a momentary basis, to examine our reactivities and go beyond them and allow the goodness within us to shine forth. Otherwise, something else within us will shine forth. And we know what happens when that happens. And then he goes on to say, if you can't realize this by yourself, the moment you give rise to the light of prajna, all your delusions will vanish in a flash. Right? Give rise to the light of prajna. Allow the light of wisdom to shine. Allow it to show you. Don't go along with your assumptions. Turn, the, turn to Prajna Paramita. Practice it and allow it to guide the way. All your delusions will vanish in a flash. This is your truest friend. With one realization, you reach the state of Buddhahood. Use this wisdom to illuminate the land of the mind of your nature. And when inside and outside are perfectly clear, you will know your own mind because you will be aligned because the inside and the outside will be in alignment. Look at the gap that we often experience and practice. The gap between inner and outer. I get it, I get it, we say. But then how do we speak? How do we act? If you look at speech and action and you look at what we think we understand, you will see the gap. 
So look. Look and practice it and shrink that gap. We'll cut the two to one. And then he says, if, and, and once you know your own mind, you will be free. And once you have gained your freedom, this is the samadhi of prajna and the realization of the samadhi of prajna is no thought. If we try to think about it, we drift away from it. If we try to figure it out, we go in the opposite direction. Any effort in such a way will move us away from. Any part-time practice moves us away from. So, please feel free to drink. Don't wait for me to stop talking. This is not a day show. Okay, 32. Good friends, those who obtain my Dharma in the future, will obtain my Dharma in the future, will find that my true body never leaves their presence. So they will know that my true body never leaves their presence. What is my true body? What, is he, what does he mean by my true body? Is it him as him? Now Jesus said the Father within me. Right? The Father within me is the Father within you. What we then realize, what the Buddha realized, what Jesus realized, is alive within each one of us. Alive but dormant in many cases. And we need to awaken it or awaken to it. Because the Father within him is the Father within you. The Father within you is the Father within me. So my true body is that the Dharma body is within each and every one of us. That's not in question. What's in question is whether or not we're going to turn towards it and whether or not we're going to allow that to be the guide in our lives. That's in question. As the Buddha said, everybody can realize, but most will not. Not because he was pessimistic. Because he knew what we're up against. He knew what we have to work with. He knew how challenging it is to go beyond self. He knew how challenging it is to truly embrace impermanence. It is. It's possible. But it's not without challenges. So then he says, good friends, if you resolve to uphold the same view and the same practice as the direct teaching of this school, it will be as if you were doing the work of a Buddha, because you are. And those who uphold it and don't forsake it for the rest of their lives will themselves enter the ranks of sages. Of course. Of course, because it's only one. And it's timeless. It's not those who have it and those who, no, who don't have it. It's those who turn towards it and trust it and allow it to shine forth and those who allow something else to shine forth. That's the difference. It's all there. What am I turning towards? What do I allow to shine forth? What do I allow to guide me today? 
today, as I move, as I speak, as I think, what do I put my trust in? Then he says, but it must be passed on. Very important point. The robe and the teaching that have been transmitted in silence, in silence because it doesn't need one word. Or we can say that one word, one word and heaven and earth are infinitely set apart. One word, one thought, one blink of an eye. And we are as if separated. And even when we feel separated, we're not separated because we're not trying to glue all the pieces together to realize something. That's not what it is. But we have to stop chopping it up in the mind so we can realize that it's always been just one. So in silence since ancient time must be shared with others who make great vows and don't forsake enlightenment. Do not forsake who you are. Do not turn away from who you really are, is what he's saying. He's not saying, follow my teaching. He's saying, follow your true nature. But don't think that you know that true nature. Because that thought makes you go in the opposite direction. It's not in a word, it's not something that can be given as in the Tao Te Ching, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. Yet we speak, yet we, we read, we look at texts, we chant. Why? For one reason, for one reason, to allow it to be a mirror or to, as if we are looking at a mirror. What do I see? within me? And am I able to allow this, or how do I allow this, to come out and be shared with the world? So we are talking about that which is beyond words. If we understand that we're talking about that which is beyond words, we are free to use words. And we are less likely to be caught up in words. Right? If we say something and somebody misunderstands us, well, no problem, let's take another word. Doesn't matter to me. No, but I said this and you said that. Well, who cares? It's not the word. Do we, do we, are we looking at what the word is pointing or are we going to just swap words and I got so many words, you got less words, I win, you lose. Or I'm more pithy than you. Or oh, I know more quotes than you. It, it is when we do that, and we do it often, we have to examine, it's not that we have to be self-critical about that, but we have to examine the source or the root causes of such thinking or such speech or such actions. So keep your mouth shut and turn inwardly and look at what, what, what's going on? Where is it coming from? What am I protecting? Who am I protecting? Is it really working or is it worth it? We think it does. We think it's working. But does it? And however, no matter where you are, if someone holds a different view 
and lacks resolve, don't be foolish enough to teach them. You know, the, the Dharma has been equated to a poisonous snake, actually. So, and we have to learn how to work with it. It, it can, it's meant to be healing, but when it's not used well, it could be very harmful. Because it can become something that I'm going to hold on to as I know. I got the goods. You don't. Therefore, I'm better than you. Because I know the Dharma and you don't. I'm enlightened. You're deluded. That's adding nonsense to nonsense. Adding stupidity to stupidity. There's enough of that. So don't be foolish enough to teach them. Because they'll take it and use it against you or against someone else. So use discernment. Or we can say, maybe teach them in another way. How? By being it. By being the Dharma. By embodying the Dharma. Teach or let your life teach. Not your mouth, not your mind, thinking mind. Let your life teach. I remember I shared that with you before, but... You know, when I was, you know, after two or three years of practicing Aikido, I thought I got somewhere. So, back in Israel, and so I would work with a beginner, and I wanted to explain to the beginner what to do, and my teacher came by and said, shut up. And then, you know, don't say anything, just practice. And after class, I went over, and I, I said, should I not say to the beginner, do this, do that? He said, well... It, First of all, he said, if you think they're making a mistake, look at yourself and, and watch. You may be making the exact same mistake. That's one. Two, if you think you're, you're doing it correctly, then do it and let them follow your doing, not your mouth. That was 30 years ago. And I remember that as if it was a minute ago. Because it's deeply profound. You want to teach something? Do it. Be it. Live it. Then you're teaching it. And those who are ready to learn will learn. Because they will, their eyes will open and they'll see. Those who are not ready will not. Will not. Maybe you're sowing seeds that may manifest later on. Maybe. Maybe not. You will never know. But it doesn't matter because you are living your life by the light of the Dharma even if you're the only person on earth, the last one on earth that is turning inwardly, they're living the, the, their life based on the Dharma, that's fine. Be the only one. It doesn't matter whether it's one person or millions. It doesn't change the Dharma. It doesn't change the teachings. It doesn't change what the words are pointing at. So why should it matter, right? So don't be foolish enough to teach them. Not only will... You harm those who have come before you, right? Why? Because you will not be true to the Dharma. Ultimately, it won't do them any good. So you will turn against those who came before you and passed on the Dharma to you and those who you try to teach. It won't do them any good either. So looking back, you're turning against. Looking forward, it's not going to work. For if they are too foolish to understand and they criticize this teaching, they will sever their roots of enlightenment for hundreds 
kalpas and a thousand lifetimes. Why? Because we perpetuate delusion. And we, we keep the karma going in the same trajectory, which inevitably is going to, man, to create and manifest in more of the same. Right? It's going to stay in the same trajectory. I am always triggered by those things. And five years, ten years, or ten lifetimes from now, I will keep being triggered by those same triggers. Because I go around, I walk around, and I nurture the illusion of separateness. I nurture the illusion of separateness. Because otherwise, what would I protect? What would I protect? So this is from uh, Bill Porter in the commentary. It says, Huineng is approaching the end of the sermon around which this sutra was compiled. He has transmitted the formless precepts and explained the Plajna Paramitta. And now he asks his audience to uphold the teachings and to pass it on to others. The reason Huineng stresses the transmission of this teaching is that it only exists to be transmitted. I'm going to ask you in a few minutes why, so keep that in mind. That's what a teaching is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a teaching. If it isn't transmitted, it disappears. It's like when you use one candle to light another candle. Our candle goes out, but not the, other, not the light. Likewise, this teaching is transmitted from one, one mind to another. From one mind to another. But Huineng also warns against indiscriminate transmission. If someone is not ready to receive this teaching and we try to instruct them and they reject it, this will only alienate them from the Dharma. It will also prolong their suffering on the wheel of existence and non-existence. It will be like trying to use our candle to light someone's finger. It's a good analogy. Right? It will hurt. It will create destruction if we are not using it in the right way. If we're not practicing correctly, if we're not sharing correctly. True body, as the Buddha does, so he's referring to the line which says, true body, my true body. As the Buddha does in the Diamond Sutra, Huineng likens the teachings to, to his threefold body. The teaching itself is the Dharmakaya, the body of reality. The realization of the teaching is the Sambhogakaya, the body of bliss or joy. And the manifestation of the teaching is the Nirmanakaya, the Buddha's human body. But the teaching itself is every Buddha's true body. The teaching is the body. It reflects you, or the you before you, and the you after you. Thus, those who encounter this teaching will find themselves in the presence of Huineng and the lineage of Buddhas that he represents. So that's what is meant by we walk, when we practice correctly, we walk eyebrow to eyebrow with the ancient masters. That's why they devoted their lives to the practice. That's why they did what they did. That's why they were so selfless in giving their time and effort to everybody who was ready and willing to take on the practice. 
So it exists only for the transmission. So what does that mean? Any other thoughts, questions about that before we move on? So let's open it up. Yeah. yeah it's, um, Just keep in mind, you're going to have to mm -hmm. raise your volume because of the microphone. Sure, sure. Um, I've always gone back and forth about my feelings about discriminate and indiscriminate transmission at times because there's elements of it that can come off or feel like gatekeeping. Mm. Not only who am I to say that you can to deny you this or to judge your readiness, mm -hmm. but who am I to give it at, at, at all? And But I've also witnessed not just, I mean, I guess you could probably say the Dharma, but you could see it in things of uh, any kind of knowledge or people struggling with sobriety or, or things of that nature where you could see when somebody got a piece of information too soon mm -hmm. and they weaponized it or mm -hmm. tried or mistake it as a means of bypassing a real work that is really unquantifiable. It's not like, okay, you practice three years, now you get it. Mm -hmm. And it, suddenly you unlock another level where you pay a subscription and, right. and so on and so forth, you know, um, gold member package. Um, but, um, so, but it's, so it's, always been hard for me but I've seen it also happen to myself and so I'm kind of at a loss of where to sit with it I guess this goes back to what you were saying earlier about getting tri tripped up on semantics or the right words or something like that well there's that, there's that but also there is a question, okay so you're saying giving right so this is actually the word the word, words can, I mean different words can mean different things or mean different things, right? So there, there are different connotations. So if I use the word giving in, in relation to the Dharma, then it can create the notion or the illusion of I have something that you don't. And if you behave and do all these things, I may give it to you. I may share it with you, right? But transmission does not mean giving. Transmission is mirroring, right? So now what does that mean? So it means you can, and you know, it happens often, right? So you may be in touch with and connected with and see Buddhahood or, or sense Buddhahood, right? And sit in front of somebody and, and see their own Buddhahood while they are blind to their own Buddhahood right. and act as if they're not. Mm -hmm. So you realize, okay, well, I can, I'm not going to give you anything, but what I can do is remind you or maybe reflect to you what you are blind to, mm -hmm. show you, you are following wrong, you're going in the wrong direction, you're following voices that lead you astray, right? So why don't you look deeper, right? And you could say, of course, upaya is a very important point, right? So you have to be skillful in the way you reflect that because if you're gonna tell somebody, well, I realized something many years ago and now here's what I have to say, they may say, screw you, right? You know, I know better. Well, who are you? You think you know so much or know more than me, mm -hmm. right? So you have to use discernment in the way you will share it. Yeah. I, I think, it, you know, it's, I don't want to say low stakes, but a, a very simple example from every time I've gone up to Daibosatsu, sitting with the monks during mealtime, I feel like I learn a new way to move mm -hmm. or a different way to create less, you know, leakage. Right, right. And 
they might not even know they're doing that. They're just doing it. And so I often think, you know, it's this kind of middle ground of, you know, you get the trope of dance as though nobody's watching. Right. But then there's also everybody's watching. Be mindful of how you move. <laughs> right. You know, right. Because like, right. it's going, if you're spending so much time worrying about how everyone's looking, you'd be shocked to find that nobody is. But there is this energy of we're doing it for each other, so be mindful of how you Yes, it's a very good, actually, you raise a very good point, which I probably should say something about, you know, so, so the expectation of, uh, from a beginner, right, or somebody who's practicing for a short period of time, and the expectation from, or of um, somebody who's been around for like a senior practitioner, very different, right? Senior practitioner should keep in mind that they are being observed, and people who are newcomers naturally follow that. So if, if, if a senior practitioner is careless about their own practice, that's what they project and that's what they share, to, you know, and this is very important, right? So Aikido, Zen, anything, right? So, you know, you get on the mat and you train, right, as a senior or as a black belt, for example, you have huge responsibility, huge responsibility because people are looking at you and that's how people are going to practice. Right? I mean, Kojin knows that, you know, so it's very important, right? From Taekwondo, it's very important. And in Zen as well, right? So, yes, practicing for others, meaning taking full responsibility for my own thoughts and speech and actions. Not because others are watching, but because that's how I teach. That's how we teach each other, mirror to each other. So, yeah, thank you for, for that. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, it just something just came to me um, when you were speaking and you were, you know, about imp- about imparting. Sorry, <laughs> imparting. Uh, it was my teacher voice. Um, so it came to me that um, everything I've taught, even in special education, I haven't taught. I've just helped them realize what they can do. <laughs> And that, I don't know, that just came to me. For example, even, even um, you know, I'm in a sp- uh, specific situation in special education, I'm supposed to not just teach them academics, but I'm supposed to teach them how to behave socially and how to um, interact with each other and life skills and everything like that, right? So um, just, noticing what they do that's correct or I don't want to say correct um, noticing what they do that spreads goodness to others actually and noticing that and saying it out loud hey you just did this that's great you know and then they're like oh you know and that's what they realize um, instead of I taught them how to do it then it's they just figured out that they already know how to do this, you know, naturally, because they have such innate goodness and just realizing that. So I just wanted to share. Right, so to reflect to each other what we already are, right? Mm-hmm. And to keep, and also to remember that we do that by taking full responsibility for our practice. 
taking full responsibility for the way we move, right? And, and working on aligning ourselves with wisdom on a daily basis, which is a lifelong, lifelong endeavor. It can be challenging. It is challenging. But we're up for it. That's the thing, right? We're up for it because we, we are born able to. We are born like that. Well, we are born with all capacities, but that's one of the capacities. So since we are born with that or born as that, of course we are up for it. We're not saying do what you are not born to do. We're saying go back to that and do what you are born to do, not what you have created or what was created around you, and then you obey that. It's amazing so. how, so, I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. amazing how surprised they are to, when they realize what they've done. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, I told Bradley, my, my student, this past year, I'm, I'm gonna have him again, actually, I'm really looking forward to it. But um, once he said, I, you know, he was like, did I do that, you know? And I was like, you did that, you know? It's just how surprised they are. Like, can really do this? Because it goes against the grain. Because they think certain things about themselves. It goes against the grain of what we think and we have to go beyond thought to realize. Anyone else? I want, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and that's, that's your upaya, right? That's the skillfulness of maintaining a practice throughout the day, throughout your life. It, it does require honing the skill, right? And keep, to keep honing the skill, which I think is what keeps it alive too, right? You know, you, it makes you more interested as you go through your day. Never mind how I expressed it yesterday, how am I going to express it now? in this situation, with that person, with those people. I don't know. 
What is being triggered in me now, right? How can I go beyond this now? It keeps it alive, it keeps it real. So, yeah. Anyone else? Kojin, are you uh, deep in thought? Um, no, I was, I was just thinking what Tyler was talking about. Um, so, you know, I encounter this all the time, you know, when to teach somebody something. And the question is, is not really, in my mind, when to teach it. It's, it's when are they at a spot where they can learn it. Right? So, like, if I show, so we get from time to time, you know, young adults that come in that are very fit, you know, they exercise a lot. So, if I showed them the six degree black belt point, they could probably learn it, yeah. right? But they, well, they could probably memorize the techniques and the, the, the steps, but they would never learn it because there's so much that needs to go up to that to be to the point where you're ready to receive that form. Um, so you would never be able to even attempt to master it, right? So, so I think when you talk about you know, the, the transmission, um, I don't think it's necessarily you transmit it or you don't transmit it. I think it's you use the opaya that's at your disposal to to teach someone something that they can learn, mm -hmm. right? Because, and that's when you talk about why does this need to be transmitted? Mm -hmm. um, because a, a teaching is nothing if, if someone can't learn it, right? And, and not everybody is at a spot to be able to learn it, right? So to take Sen, for example, um, it, in the beginning, you're basically focusing on the way that you sit, um, we ask you to focus on the state of your cushion, you know, where your sutra book is, you know, where your rakasu bag is, how it's arranged. You know, we ask you to, you know, kind of pay attention to that, pay attention to your posture, your breathing, your mind. Um, and then as, as you kind of move on, um, you know, when you start to take some of these liturgy positions, the, the concentration involved becomes much more intense, right? So you have to have that foundation of paying attention in order to even be able to do one of those positions, right? So if someone who just came in, you said, okay, you're Jisha today, right? You know, they could probably learn or they could probably memorize when to do what and how to ring the bell or whatever but they wouldn't really learn what that position is trying to teach them mm -hmm. because they're not ready to receive it yet, mm -hmm. right? So it's not a question of teaching and not teaching, it's, it's a question of when, mm -hmm. you know? And some people can, can do that Jisha position after two weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, some people could take two years. But I, I think that, that that's, you know, where I, where I come from on, on this because the teaching is free, it's there. It's not something that some people have and some people don't have. It's just when you have a good friend who's helping you, mm -hmm. you know, what upaya do they use to help you learn it mm -hmm. and when? Right, and the best upaya, the most, the most profound upaya is your being, right? Because all upayas essentially flow from the teaching, flow from your being. 
So if you turn inwardly to that, you will know what to do and how to do it. If you turn to the mind, to the thinking mind, it has other ideas, right? It, and it is vested in something too, right? And that's the thing. It'll, it'll tell us to say this or not say that based on what I'm vested in. Right, right. Because that thinking mind is trying to perpetuate itself. Exactly. Almost, it's so right, powerful. exactly. And, and the sense of, I mean, the, the, the illusion of separateness, right? right? And the teachings are actually going in the other The teachings are, are reflecting unity. The thinking mind wants to chop it up and wants to create self and other. The teachings, right? The teachings are, refle- are, are pointing at unity. So I turn to unity and I allow unity to manifest through the many. Then there's, no being, there's not being vested in anything. It's just, well, what else am I going to do? Great. You were going to say something. I was, I was going to say that as a person who is a teacher, whether that's like because you're a senior or whatever, or like you're an actual active like education teacher or whatever, when you have that knowledge, I don't think it's about like actively teaching it as much as leaving the door open and those who want, who, who are ready will see it open mm-hmm. and those who don't right. have what, it, you know, they're not ready will see it as closed. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is funny because when you, when you for, for me, for example, I look up to my parents as like people as, as, as a younger person, you know, they've been teaching me so many things my whole life. Um, but as you get older, you start to realize that a lot of the things you start learning on your own time, they might not even know. And so it was kind of against the grain in the other day when I was cooking empanadas, but I wanted to cook the inside and was, I was frying them. I wanted to cook the inside to be not cold like my mom used to, like my mom is, they're made to be baked. They're supposed to not be fried. But in this case, I have less time than necessary to bake them, so we fried them. And I said, why don't I attempt this technique I learned with my friend who's Chinese who makes dumplings and put water in the oil after a second and then put a top on it. And everyone was like, no, that's going to start like this and that, and it's going to be horrible, and you're gonna, like, everything's going to explode. Like, and it was just like... I'm constantly going back and forth. It made me feel like I didn't know how to cook. Mm-hmm. And, I, and for a while, you know, I look up to other people who cook. Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe I don't know this, so I shouldn't do it. And then I decided, no, it's okay. So I did it, ended up showing them that it worked. Mm-hmm. And they were both surprised and learned something new. But that against, almost like that push against like, no, I know better than you, almost you know, that did separate us. There was no unity in the fact that the teacher at this point might just learn from the student. The student. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of opening that door and just allowing things to occur as they do, but still being there for them if it doesn't work out is I think also very important. And then, so it's not when you transmit it as much as also just allowing it to be from your action. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so keeping. The, go ahead. Just one more thing. Go. That I was reminded of, even more so when you were talking, uh, I was thinking of the times you've said, as a, as an Aikido teacher, where you go up to people and you say, say, do this, do this, do this, over and over and over again, and they finally get it one day, and they say, you never said that to me. Right. 
<laughs> and, and, you, and you go, yes, I did. <laughs> I did say it. But you just heard it. Or sometimes I just say, okay, and walk away. But because, because what matters is that, you know, now you realized it, you got it, and that's what's important. Right. But then, you know, it's important. So, so what we're saying is because we never know when we're going to be ripe or mature to get it, it means we have to stick with it. It means we have to practice through the highs and lows when we feel encouraged or discouraged. We have to learn to keep going. Because if we, if we feel discouraged and we walk away from the practice, well, we walk away from the practice. Then it's not going to penetrate. It's not going to remind me anything because I decided to turn away from it. But if I, if I know to go through or work through periods of feeling discouraged, then at some point... Or little by little, it's going to penetrate. It will awaken something dormant in me. Because it is there now. Right? It's not that I will get it or not get it. At some point, it will awaken. To what degree or depth, that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because if you practice, 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 you will be... Was that? I think it was uh, Suzuki. Diti Suzuki said, it doesn't... Realization or not, doesn't really matter that. What matters is that if you practice, he said long enough, you will be a highly refined individual. You will be a highly refined individual. And that, there's a lot of truth to that. Because the more you practice, the less interested you are in following those negative or unwholesome thoughts. And you learn to, to decipher, you learn to discern. It doesn't matter how long it takes, but it's a process. It's a process that we have to learn to maintain. Now, the one line here, if it isn't transmitted, it disappears. This is from Bill Porter. I think it's very important to understand that. Now, transmission, we can say, well, you know, a teacher transmits to uh, a, a disciple, and then the disciple becomes a Dharma teacher, right? That's what officially what we refer to. But this is actually referring to each, one, each of us, because it, we, we, have, we are responsible to maintain the practice, to be a strong link on this endless chain. So if I slack off in my practice, I actually kill the, kill the teachings. Not the teachings will die. It's just that I kill the continuation. Because what I'm saying or what I'm doing is that it's not going to perpetuate through me. It will stop with me. That's what I'm saying. So it is, and it means take full responsibility for your life, for your practice, moment by moment, for the way you act. And, you know, when we look at Jukai, for example, that's what that means. You are stepping it up a notch. You're saying, okay, I get it. I'm it. So I'm going to practice being it, and I'm going to reflect that to others. That's what it means. And I think it has to get to a point that we cannot deceive ourselves or we cannot go along with the self-deception. Even if we do for a day or two, a week or a month, we snap out. I'm just lying to myself. Turning away from the Dharma is turning away from who we are, is perpetuating self-deception. And I'm not saying it because I'm a Zen teacher. That's not, that's not the point. It's not, well, we got the goods, others don't. It doesn't matter what we practice, what we call it. What matters is that we understand that the practice means practice who you are and practice moving away from what you're not. That's what it means. So what's the alternative? 
right? We have to ask. So we'll have to finish on that note, unless any, if anybody has last word, literally a word, because we're running out of time. Yes, Just quick, quick one. I was reminded of it, and I'm like only getting the thought piecemeal. Wasn't there a, a koan about the Buddha just being the finger pointing? Or yes, Mahakashyap uh, pointing or raising? Point, uh, pointing, like no, you actually raised the flower. Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about like it's pointing at the moon. Finger pointing. Finger pointing. Yeah, right. It's the line, you know, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Right. Right. So the finger point. Right. So so the words are there to point at something. The teaching is there to point at something. Right. Or we can say that the net is there to catch the fish. When you catch the fish, you don't need the net. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or or the ferry is there to cross to the other shore. When you cross the other shore, you don't walk around with the ferry on your shoulder, right? Because you're living it, basically, right? Yeah. So, right. So that's why we should not be so hung up on the words, but look at what the words are pointing at within us, mm-hmm. rather than externalize it. All right? Can I say something? Of course, yeah. So w- one thing about that. Uh, first of all, we're all beginners. That's one. Everybody's a beginner no matter how long they practice. That's one. Two, I'm going to leave you that question. When does a, a junior becomes a senior? There is no, there is no point in, you know, okay, now you are a senior. So don't assume. Don't assume. Because, because there is no such a point that we can look at. I go, here... You are no longer a junior, now you are a senior. Right? That's all made up. So just keep that in mind too. Okay, we'll uh, end with that and uh, resume next time. Thank you. Okay, four vows, please. Bodhisattva vows for all,
supreme importance. Time quickly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us must strive to awaken, awaken. Take heed, do not squander your life.